0: Welcome to Running Matters Episode 8. I'm joined with special guest Peter Hadfield and my co-host today is Paul Hadfield. Uh, Paul, UTA 100 coming up. Can you tell us a bit about the race, your experience and how the training's going three weeks out?
1: Yeah, g'day Matt. Thanks for having me again. Uh, Yeah, got UTA 100 in about three weeks time now. It's a race I've had a crack at maybe six or seven times in different sort of uh, uh distances or d- different parts of the race and so gonna have a go at the 100 again this year training's going well despite a couple of setbacks i suppose busted my arm a couple of months ago and uh bounced back okay from that and we've had a bub about six months ago so that was a little bit of a setback for the training i guess a few sleepless nights and whatnot but all going well um, the race is essentially 100k through the Blue Mountains down into Megalong Valley, Wentworth Falls, through Lura and starts and finishes at Scenic World in Katoomba. So I think there's something in the vicinity of 3000 runners having a crack over the 50k and the 100k. Um and so yeah, I'm I'm doing the 100 and there's a bunch of our listeners probably having to go at the 50 or the 100, so good luck to everyone out there.
0: Nice one. How many times have you done the 100 and how many times you've done your 50 and what a what are, what are your best times?
1: I've had a crack three times at the 100. I um, only finished the once, um, so not a great strike rate. Had to pull the pin about 60 k's in on both of my DNFs. One through just stomach distress, I guess you'd call it, but probably a lack of motivation I suppose and second time around was just a a bit of a crippling full body cramp that came on 40 or 50 k's in didn't let up until I was laid out in front of about 20 German tourists somewhere between Katuma and Lura uh, and just couldn't continue there was no point having a crack at the last 40 when I, I could hardly stand up and walk my way out of there and then finished a couple of years back, thankfully, uh, in 13.20. And that was enough for my silver belt buckle, which I was pretty pumped about. Um,
0: That's awesome. Um, what what time would you like to be going on record for uh, time <laughs> time you'd like to run this year? Uh, I'd like to have a crack
1: and try to break 13. I reckon there's 20-odd minutes out there somewhere to be gained. Um, so that would be good. But... Uh, Once again, I'll be happy to finish the thing. It's a pretty, pretty gruelling sort of race, so anything at the finish will be good.
0: Um, what about Hammer? How many times has he entered the race, and how many times has he finished?
1: (laughs) I think he's actually got a fairly similar strike rate to me, so I can't be too, uh, yeah, uh, damaging in my chat about Hammer. (laughs) But yeah, I think he might have started three times for the hundred and finished the once as well.
0: So yeah, about the same. I'm disappointed. I was, I was hoping <laughs> you'd, you'd give me five or six, but that's uh, that's fine. So good luck with that event coming up, right. uh, looking uh, looking sharp. So, Pete, thanks very much for giving up your time today. I uh, just want to recap on your career highlights. You're nine times Australian decathlon champion between 76 and 85. Uh, you've been to two Olympics in 1980 at Moscow, where you finished fourth, and 84 in L.A., You've been to two Commonwealth Games, uh, 78 in Canada, 82 in Brisbane, um, and you won a silver medal at the 78 Games. Uh, 2006, you were awarded the Order of Australia. Am I missing anything from that, uh, that 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 roll call?
2: No, I think you just about got it all, Matt. Um, yeah, unfortunately, it was a very long, long time ago. But <laughs> yeah, no, it was. It was um, yeah, I had. Had a great career. I guess the disappointment I, when you said about nine national championships. I uh, I was actually away in in France for in 1978 and uh, missed the national championships. I competed in a in a French uh, decathlon I um, scored about six or seven hundred points more than the person who won the Australian Championships that year. So uh, I would like to think that I was the number one in the country for ten consecutive years. But I did only win nine nine national championships in the decathlon.
0: Can you um, can you tell our listeners um, what what the events are included with the decathlon and um, how it's scheduled over the two days?
2: Yeah, I'd like a dollar for everyone that's actually asked me that question. Uh, <laughs> Daley Thompson, who won the gold medal and was world record holder. He wouldn't give anybody from the media an interview unless they could name the 10 decathlon events in order just to prove that they knew a little bit about his event and they'd actually done some research. But
1: <laughs> So that's the end. That's, the that's end it, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so sorry, Matt, you
2: miss out. Matt, <laughs> I, I think I can do it. No, I'm sure you can. But so it's, it's always um, two, two days of competition. Um, first event's 100 metres. Uh, then we move into the long jump, shot put, high jump, last event on day one is 400 meters, um, day two we go out um, the 110 meter high hurdles and then the discus, the pole vault uh, and then the javelin and the last event is the 1500 meter so in an Olympic competition uh, we probably first event would start at 9 in the morning we'd probably start warming up at about 7, 7.30 because in um, say in Los Angeles as an example they they didn't have a a warm-up track next to the LA Coliseum so we had to warm up in in a completely different suburb and then get a bus from the warm-up track um, to the holding area marshalling area you had to be at the marshalling area 45 minutes before um, the start of your race so you had to make sure you were there at um, 45 minutes so 8, 8 15 if you weren't there at 8:15, regardless of who you were if you're a gold medalist from the previous olympics they wouldn't they wouldn't let you compete so you've done this warm-up for maybe half an hour or so jump in a bus and then they make you sit in a control room for basically 30 30 35 minutes and then march you out onto the track you get 10 minutes to adjust your blocks maybe do one run through uh, and then um, you do your first event and that Day probably finishes at about 10:30, 11 o'clock at night. Um, so important to then do a proper cool down. Um, yeah, do plenty of stretching. Um, we didn't have ice baths and all those massage wasn't a, wasn't an option. Probably weren't even invented back then. It was so long ago. Uh, but then get up at 5 o'clock the next morning. Uh, make sure you get plenty of nutrition in and start the process again. Head out of the warm up track. Start warming up and get back to um, the the finish of the decathlon at 10.30, 11 o'clock at night. And on, at both Olympics in, in Moscow and in LA, I got picked to do a, a random drug test. So after being on the track for you know, two days, a you know, bit dehydrated, uh, it took me about two and a half hours to produce a specimen. So I actually didn't get back to the Games Village until about one or two o'clock in the, the morning. So um, the, the chef de Michonne in Moscow uh, was a guy called Phil Coles. He was coming back from a reception and um, saw that I would just come back and he said, you look like you're thirsty, would you like a beer? And I'm going, yeah, would absolutely kill a beer. And uh, went in and, and had a beer with him. And uh, But yeah, sort of went to bed about three in, three in the morning. So long drawn-out competition. And certainly there's a, a real emphasis on speed, power, technique. Well, I don't know where Paul got his endurance genes from, but he certainly didn't get them from me because the 1500, which is the last event in, in the decathlon, I reckon it's about thirteen hundred
0: too far. It's um, I was, you you beat me to it. I was about to say you guys have nothing in common, <laughs> but uh, there's a lot of fast twitch events there, and and Paul's a, a specialist in the in the slow twitch. So it sounds like that holding room was just enough time to um, basically cool down your warm up that you had completed previously. Yeah, I think, and one of the things
2: that was important though, I. You'd, you'd certainly needed to keep warm uh, and I'd, so long as you kept kept your, your core muscles um, warm I'd, it really wasn't a problem I think you'd gone through the the process um, you'd, you can still stretch you can still do a little bit of movement it's only a tiny little room they used to be say eight eight athletes per per holding room and, and it wasn't that big but you could still do a little bit you could go through a few you know, stretching routines if you're you know, warming up for the hurdles you can do some trail leg exercise to keep keep it going it's more to get your head into into gear and just say okay well this is what i need to do and i think the important part is that you know, while i was um, building up and training for the the olympics it was important that i really look at um, practicing what i needed to do as part of the warm-up as as well in my training when i was in australia or you know, leading up in in europe so I had simulate that same sort of warm-up in, in a training session. So I'd warm up 45 minutes before uh, I was about to do a training session and then just sit on the grass for, for 35 minutes and then do another little 10-minute warm-up leading into a training session so that yeah, there was no surprises. And I think that's important from a competitive point of view that you've got to look at not just you know the, the racing, but you also have to look at what type of preparation you might need to do in a in an event where you might have to check in or you know, i know in a lot of the longer distance events that you, know, you basically got to stand in in position maybe with a you know a plastic bag over you or whatever to try and keep some heat in and so if you're going to do that in a, in a race situation you probably need to do that as part of your training as well so that um, you can get the maximum output, and there's no there's no surprises, and you've and you've you're not concerned mentally about that preparation leading into a competition because it's way different than you would normally do in a training situation or or in a local competition.
0: Sounds like some good advice there. So why uh, why decathlon? What what made you um get into to these these events or this particular sport?
2: Yeah, it's kind of an interesting question, and I'm not sure whether I really know the answer at all. But looking looking back, I was in primary school, um, an average sprinter. There was no such thing as little A's when when I was competing. I probably, I started doing uh, junior athletics competitions when I was ten, um, but I used to train one night a week at Sutherland. Oval where the cricket um, cricketers play near the cemetery there on a grass track and sometimes those Tuesday nights were even little mini competitions and then we do a, uh, a Saturday afternoon competition at Henson Park um, at, at Marrickville. But I, I suppose I developed from doing you know, sprinting and being an average sprinter and I certainly wasn't a, you know, a super um, successful athlete as a kid. Um, I went to the state championships once when I was in primary school and got run out in the, in the first round. I you know, certainly didn't make it through to the final, didn't win anything. And even in early high school, um, it wasn't until I was in year nine that I actually started to show like uh, a bit of success. I was one of the you know, smaller kids in the, in the class, really late bloomer. Um, when it you have no hairs under the arms and and certainly bounced into puberty a lot later than a lot of my classmates and I think just because of that um, late onset of puberty lack of strength lack of height um, mm. you know I didn't perform all that well in in competition but I just loved athletics and I had a um, I li- lived in Engadine and I had a friend of my dad came out from the UK. Uh, He was a painter and wallpaper but he was a pretty good um, shot put and discus coach. So I started to learn to do a little bit of shot put and discus as well as doing the sprinting and um, learnt good technique but again because I was pretty small I didn't achieve great success until I think in year 9 so it would have been 14 or 15 or something like that. And I grew something like about 20 centimetres in one year and and filled out a, a little bit but I had really good technique and as soon as I got on a bit of size. I ended up winning the combined high school discus championship that that year um, and then I won it for the next you know, three years after that so that my major success was in the discus but I was never ever going to be big enough to be a discus thrower and we had a um, one of the athletes in my club Subtle and Athletics Club was a guy called Jeff Smith who won the gold medal at the Edinburgh Commonwealth Games in 1970 and I suppose I didn't put him up there in in hero status but I think it was the fact that he was there and he'd done the decathlon and i thought i'll try a few other events so i did a bit of hurdling and a bit of long jumping um, and i started to do reasonably well at it but not great but and it wasn't until i um, went to uni i went to sydney uni did an economics degree it was when i did my first decathlon and uh, i'd done a couple of junior multi-event competitions and done done pretty well but i had to learn how to pole vault learn how to high jump so that i could do the uh, the decathlon so it was a late onset, and uh, a lot of people reckon it's. Um, of course, I've got the attention span of a gnat, and can't and can't and, and can't focus on anything for too long. So I kind of do a whole range of things. Uh, some of my other teammates, yeah, not I suppose, um, say that I, you know, I wouldn't, um, I couldn't make it as a, an athlete in a single event. So I did the, the the decathlon, but I like to point out to them that I was also the. Yeah, the state champion in the long jump and state champion in the, the pole vault and number two in the hurdles and um, discus. So uh, I probably could have done okay and, and achieved success in an individual event. Uh, and But I just quite enjoyed the variety in training, the variety in competition. And it's quite a... It's an interesting event because it doesn't matter whether you'll win or lose any of the individual events, it's all based upon a a point system that they've created. So if you you run, uh, say, 11 seconds flat for the 100 meters, you always get 800 points. If you run 10.6, you always get 900 points. And they've got uh, this graded scale of uh, points that they have for the 10 events. So it becomes a real challenge mentally um, to be able to develop a, a training program that'll allow you to you know, continually improve on um, your overall performance and sometimes you have you know, better throws or better jumps or better runs in a particular decathlon you know sometimes things fall apart or sometimes you pull two or three pbs together so it's quite interesting quite good to follow and uh, was interesting when I competed in Europe because the say in Austria or Germany or whatever the decathlon was considered one of the the leading events in fact in in Germany they were sort of on the the same I guess status as Bernard Langer or whatever the golfer so they, they were up there with some of the highest recognized athletes or sports people in, in Germany and, and people knew who I was walking down the street and they knew what my PBs were and what my scores were but here in Australia yeah, no one would, would know in fact the um, when I the, the the year that I retired um, in 1985 or was sort of a 10-year span have never been beaten by an Australian and being the number one in the country for, for 10 years and didn't even res, you know get a results column in the in the local papers or in the in the Daily Telegraph.
0: why, why do you think that is why you know there's certain sports certainly that um, that Australians you know they, they like the distance marathoners they like the sprinters the you know they like the swimmers why why the decathlon why why doesn't it share the same fame as these other sports?
2: Yeah, I think probably just that lack of understanding, and and again maybe the attention span of the spectators is a bit yeah. like mine. They just can't hang in there for you know two days to 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 watch it.
1: No, two twenty the Cath
2: <laughs> So so I think that's the key. It's really a matter of you need to have a little bit of an understanding to get right into the to the event. Um, and I and Paul's probably heard it a million times before, but. I, I guess I trade on that because I do a fair bit of you know, motivational you know, speaking for a lot of companies around the country and done it overseas as well. And my, my normal opener is that um, uh, yeah I was number one in the country for 10 years. Yeah, you, you, everybody in the audience probably doesn't know <laughs> who the hell I am mm-hmm. or what I did. And I, I tell the audience not to feel embarrassed because um, you know and really nobody knew who I was, and it uh, was interesting. I said one of the disappointing parts of in my 10-year career as the number one in the country, that I was never once asked for an autograph over those over those 10 years until the day I um, announced my retirement. Well, actually, it was the day after I announced my retirement over in the LA Games. I was walking down Hollywood Boulevard just wearing a T-shirt and a pair of shorts, nothing that tied me in with the Australian athletics team, and this quite... Yeah, attractive young lady came screaming out from the other side of hollywood boulevard with this leather bound autograph book in her hand asking me if i could please stop and, and sign an autograph yeah so i'm i thought she'd been really paying a lot of attention at the coliseum over the last two days beforehand and i still remember this girl's name louise so it must have made an impression back in 1984 and uh, so she got this autograph book out and again it was leather bound and um, so I thought I better make this a half decent so I had two Louise best wishes and then she said to me I thought you were fantastic in the Superman movie (laughs) and and so she just said, you know, how good it was that I defeated Alex Luthor in Superman <laughs> One and what have you. And I made—I actually, just, I hadn't ever thought about it, so I didn't have the heart to disappoint her. So my only, uh, my only autograph in my entire athletic career was to Louise, best wishes, and I just signed it, Christopher Reeve, and gave <laughs> and, and just gave it to her.
0: So that was it. Oh, that's a that's a great story. Uh, that's hilarious. So, that that's a. That might help us answer the next question, but I was about to ask you about um whether whether your um whether the your athletics career had enough uh, sponsorship or financial support to uh to be able to train full time.
2: The answer is no. Um, while I was competing right through that ten year period, I was a, a full time high school teacher. Uh, the only time that I got any time to train full time was when I was in a, um, say, an Australian team, and I would take leave without pay from from teaching, and then go and um, you know travel with the the team and and, and train full time. And I actually elected on a number of occasions for as preparation for Commonwealth Games or Olympics to take you know full term or sometimes two full terms off and. Uh, leave without pay and travel at my own expense to um, to go to, well, I had three stints I'd, in 1978. Um, I travelled to Paris and worked out with the um, the world record holder in the in the pole vault and his coach. In 1980, I travelled over to Austria and worked out um, with an Austrian national um, decathlon coach who I'd met two years beforehand and I worked a little bit with the West German team as well. And in 1982, uh, I went over to the UK and um, spent six months in the UK and I trained with um, Daley Thompson's um, coach, Bruce Longden, for six months. And yeah, at the same time, I was married. Um, so I took yeah, Marilyn my, my, my wife and I took you know Paul came came away when he was a baby he he was in in Austria in, in 1980 and, and in 1982 so he spent a big chunk of his life at athletics tracks when he was a, just just walking or and or even before he was walking and I think that was from and from a sponsorship point of view um, absolutely zero sponsorship no financial support uh, except that Adidas were a really good um, supporter, and they provided me with yeah you know, all all my gear. So and I used to wear a lot of shoes, and I used to wear out a lot of shoes. And yeah, you know, but other than that, um, they that was that was it. So I was offered a a scholarship um, when they opened up the um, Australian Institute of Sport in Canberra, um, but the deal was to go down um, and stay in a university dorm. Um, you know, I was married with two kids, Ben, Paul Paul, and Mark, and there was no, um, the scholarship really entailed um, athletic, you know, sporting support, medical, what have you, but I still had to pretty much work full time to you know, keep the family going and keep me going. So it was a matter of um, looking at it and thinking, well, I'm actually worse off by going down there because we had a house here in um, here in Sydney and, you mm. um, yeah, it was I had had a teaching job, so I turned down the Institute of Sport, which I don't think they were very happy about. Um, and a bit, little bit later, though, I I went down and and spent eighteen months um, down in South Australia in pre- preparation for the LA um, Games in eighty three eighty four. But I I still worked there, but I wasn't teaching full time. I had a part-time job um, selling insurance for AMP, and I also did a little bit of PR work for one of the local um, building societies down there, which gave me a little bit of flexibility. I suppose it would have been much, much better, more for the fact that I would be able to recover a lot easier, and I think that's the key. You miss that recovery by not by having to work full time. Gotcha. I guess one of the things that was a bit embarrassing about um, not getting any financial support is, uh, from Australia was that um, I was asked to go up to um, train with the, the West German national decathlon coach and his squad and I had to say to him I can't afford it. I just said I didn't have enough money to you know, airfare and, and pay for any accommodation what have you. and he said oh, no, don't worry the the West German Federation will pay for your airfare, and you can just stay at my place. So I was up there for two or three weeks, and at their expense, and, and I learned I learned a lot. But uh, yeah, when I someone actually asked me to, to look at you know what I made out of ath- athletics, and I said absolutely zero. I've certainly made money out of it now because it's opened up a, a lot of doors and allowed me to do quite a quite a few things. But back then, I probably every year took at least one or two terms off. Leave without pay for you know, eight, eight years, and, and because I was married, Marilyn did the the same. So we sort of squirrel away some cash. And although we lived overseas in Paris or you know, Germany or Austria or UK or whatever, uh, it was just really pretty, pretty stern living. We didn't have any spare cash at all. Um, so, yeah, I guess. Probably a little jealous now that there's an opportunity to to make some cash, but only there's only a few track and field athletes that are really earning above the poverty line. Uh, but it would have been good to be one of those to at least get a bit of support so that you didn't have to you know, live below the poverty line.
0: Particularly because you're at the you know you're at the peak of the of your career for ten years in Australia, you think that uh, being so consistent and and being so good, you know, you would have had some opportunities here.
2: Yeah, and I think that's the thing. It was quite interesting um, that after I'd retired, um, a few, well, not so much sponsorships, but a few um, commercial opportunities came up because I did a number of television commercials and what have you, but you know, pretty uh, after, <laughs> afterwards, so, yeah. but no, it was, uh, and I don't, I don't regret it. And I think that's one of the things that's quite um, quite good from my perspective is that what it does do is if things aren't going well in competition because you've needed to rely on yourself you you can come through and you can work out a solution to that and you can really tough it out i think there's a few athletes around uh, again because they rely pretty heavily on their entourage of support team or um, things they haven't really had to battle too, too hard when things get tough they don't really have the intestinal fortitude to be able to overcome the the problem so you know it would have been good to get the support but i think what it did do is made me a really tough athlete and an athlete that you know knew my body um, knew what i needed to do to get out of a slump Um, yeah but even then Things still go wrong though, and so, but yeah, I I would never go back and say I'd like to do it all again, but it would have been good to get a bit more financial support than I did.
0: Absolutely, we were chatting to Lloydy last week, and I was just saying to Paul before that uh, the fun run king was cleaning up in the uh, <laughs> in the 80s and made uh, quite a lucrative uh, living out of you know just traveling the country and also the states and Europe and just winning fun runs, uh, marathons, that sort of thing, and, and did very well out of it.
2: And even now, though, the decathletes, unless you're you know, the Olympic champion, you're still not going to make a lot of money, whereas if you're a decent Kenyan marathon runner, you can pick up you know, quarter of a million, $300,000 US, and then if you're running 204 or 205, you get time bonuses as well. So they could have a day at the office for a marathon and pick up four or $500,000 US in one run. So. It's, there's not a lot of other athletes around the world that are able to do that either.
0: Yeah, plus plus their endorsements and yeah. they're, they're doing very well. So I read um, you were the Australian champion and record holder in '76, but weren't selected for the Montreal Olympics. Did you tread on the wrong bloke's toes, or what's the story there?
2: Yeah, it was a bit of a or dis- well, more than a bit of a disappointment. I'd um, I'd won the national championships the year before, and in, in in sorry, came second in the in the in the championships in '75 and it you know, was really working hard towards you know realizing a dream of you know, getting in the olympic team and you know, won the new south wales championships broke the australian record won the australian championships uh and everybody around me was basically saying oh, all you have to do is pack your bags and um at those at that stage though what they used to do was say okay well, we've got enough funding to send maybe 12 athletes or 15 athletes mm-hmm. or whatever the number was so they'd try and rank everybody, you know, so it was steeplechaser versus marathon runner versus hurdler you know, versus decathlete. And so as it turned out, I was, um, my ranking on the list was a little bit lower than the, the cutoff mark. They took three um, high hurdlers, 110 meter hurdlers, uh, steeplechaser, a few others who all got run out quite badly in the first rounds. So at least I would have been on the track for two, two days. And actually, and it, those games in 76, um, Bruce Jenner won, uh, won the gold medal with a world record, but it was actually the first um, games that Daley Thompson was in a, as well. And I think he came 16th or something mm-hmm. in, in those games. So what it did do was actually gave you exposure to a number of the, the best athletes in the world, gave you an you know, exposure to the Olympics. And I think you know if I had have had that opportunity, it would have certainly benefited my career. I think it allowed me to achieve you know, a bit more than than I did at an international level just by having that extra two years experience.
1: Do you think it was better that you didn't get too much exposure to Bruce Jenner at the time? Seems to have worked out reasonably well.
2: Yeah, I'm not wearing frocks these days so that's good probably. <laughs> but. Uh, <laughs> uh, and it's funny because I've got a few of my Olympic buddies um, who s- say to me, "I and they actually they didn't realise that um, I didn't compete in '76. Was it what does it feel like to be beaten by a girl in the decathlon?" <laughs> but uh, I had I have met Bruce a few times, and um, yeah, the last time I, I caught up with him was in the the London Games in in 2012, and he was he was looking very much like a Ken doll with plastic uh, skin at, at that stage. But you yeah, know, having read his ready's his book. Yeah, he's in a bit of mental turmoil for for quite some some time, and and um, yeah, no. So I certainly haven't gone down the same direction as,
0: as Caitlin has. <laughs> um, well, fortunate 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 for Paul, I guess, and the kids. Um, you mentioned um, Dally Thompson. I've got a photo of him behind you on the wall. I don't know if you noticed, but you might have seen this last time you were over. Um, doesn't actually say where that photo was taken from. Does that look familiar to you? The outfits he's wearing the the English colours. Does it Does it look familiar? Or? It
2: does actually. Um,
0: the what's interesting is the carnage of the
2: uh, the 1500 metres where Daly's actually standing up and and the, one of the guys that that's on that um shot is a guy called Guido Kretschmer who was um. Was a world record holder from west west germany guido was about i know six foot four and weighed probably about 95 kilos and could run like the wind and he certainly wasn't very good at 1500 meter running so i think it might have been from the 84 olympics by the look of it because guido um, didn't get a chance to compete in 1980
0: so, um, so that was LA. Do you think? Yeah. And would you be just out of that frame on the, uh, yeah. the
2: photo somewhere? I'm probably lying on another part of the track some, somewhere because I was, I was a better 1500 meter runner than Daly, so I would have been across the line before him, but probably lying, lying down somewhere, going, oh my goodness, why have I done this for for the last time? But... <laughs>
0: Tell us about um, your first Olympics, Moscow in 1980. Was it was it a, is it a bit of a blur? Was it was it a, an amazing dream come true for you?
2: That's quite interesting that I can recollect Moscow as though it was like yesterday, and it's 38 years ago. And what was interesting about Moscow is that I'm certainly not a political animal in any way. Or and in the lead up to the Moscow. Olympics because of the Afghanistan War and Russia's involvement in the Afghanistan War um, the. US decided to boycott the, the Moscow Olympics and there was a lot of pressure put on Australia from the US to actually do the same and uh, Prime Minister at the time Malcolm Fraser um, was putting a lot of pressure on the AOC um, to not send a not send a team. So I was speaking at um, political rallies you know quite quite often as part of the my lead in, Uh, And I was actually away in Austria when they made, Australia made the decision to go and a lot of the AOC representatives sort of, they like to talk about the fact that Australia has been at every Olympics since the the modern Olympics started in 1896. But the vote um, by the AOC to go um, in Moscow was um, six to five. So there was a few um, of those um, AOC delegates who um, were keen for Australia not to go. And I was actually offered um, some cash by a few uh, prominent businessmen here in Australia um, um, to to boycott the oh, really? the, the Olympics. And um, the fact that I'd missed out in 1976 and the fact that I was in you know, good shape and, and you know, looking to guarantee a spot in, in the 80, 1980 team... And then that being taken away from me because of administrative boycott, yeah. I thought I was destined never to go to the Olympics ever. And so I, I was pretty adamant about it. And, and in fact, I, was, I can re- again remember this moment. I was um, with the coach that I was training with in, um, in Austria we were in a Chinese restaurant in, in, in this little tiny town in, in Gotzes. Uh, and one of his friends was an Austrian um, radio uh, sports journalist. And he said oh you must be really happy today and i had no idea what he was talking about he said i oh, know the australian as asc voted six to five to go to the olympic Games, so that meant that I was part of the team but i didn't ever get notified by the australian olympic committee that i was um, that i was going to be in the team and and that in fact voted to go but the you know the pageantry of um the moscow games was was amazing the fact that it was going to be my first olympics was amazing i guess i not so much overawed, but I think one of the problems, yeah, you know, that we had back then compared to a lot of the athletes now, there was no such thing as World Youth Championships or you know Youth mm-hmm. Olympics or World uh, um, Junior Championships. So the first major tournament that you did as a, as an athlete was either the Commonwealth Games or the Olympic Games. So I'd, I'd been to the Commonwealth Games, yeah, you know, two years before, and won a silver medal. And then Moscow was you know bigger than than Ben Hur, but and and I always um, remember the the opening ceremony. Um, which brings a lot of fond memories. Um, We were told that we had to get on um, the team bus and we were were driven out um, to the main main stadium. Everything was pretty much as you expected, like army regulations. Uh, We were filed out of the bus all in in order based on our, our order of marching in the opening ceremony. Um, marched out and then we were told that we had to get back on the, the bus as soon as the um, I guess the formal part of the the opening ceremony was was over and they we were to be taken back to the games village and we'd miss all of the the show side, yeah. side of thing so um, there's a 5,000 meter um, team member David Fitzsimons was a bit of a character and and, and I we said We just sort of had this conversation while we were out on the field and said, what are they going to do to us if we actually don't jump back on the bus? Mm. And so when we walked out of the stadium after they'd lit the torch and raised the flag and done all of those sorts of things, we just um, did a sharp left-hand turn and while all the other team guys sort of (laughs) headed back onto the bus, and then we sort of half ran half walked around to the other side of the stadium and then thought oh we'll just be able to use our olympic athlete passes to get because was almost an access to all area passes and then we came across about 500 army guys and we're going oh okay what do we do now show them their passes and they actually two of them escorted us into the stadium we weren't quite sure where they were taking us Whether they were taking us to a room we went through the corridors of the bowels of the stadium and then just as Zimbabwe, who are the last team marching out, we they sat us down directly behind all of the Russian dignitaries in this VIP. Oh really? right. So we um got to see the whole the whole shebang of the opening ceremony with Mishka the Bear and all of the gymnasts and the dancers and the Moscow, yeah, circus performers and what have you. So saw the whole thing, which was a pretty amazing start. We had to find our own way back to the the Games Village, which was a bit of a challenge, but uh, <laughs> Uh, and then the, the two days of the competition, just amazing competition. You know, I performed pretty well. You know, Daley Thompson won the, the gold medal that year. Uh, but yeah, as I said, I still remember it like it was yesterday.
0: While we're talking about the games, um, you would have had some downtime between the between before your event or after your event. And so, what I'm interested to know is party time and uh a lot of people letting their hair down in the village how how was the uh how was the atmosphere and and did you uh did you let your hair down yeah i think part
2: of you know the whole thing is you know people talk about it as a you know as a four-year build-up and as i said i missed out in 76 so it was almost relief that i'd actually been a part of that competition for those two days uh, must admit i was pretty tired at the end at the end of the two days. I, <laughs> would be. I, I, I got to bed about 3 o'clock, as I said, that was when Phil Coles offered me a couple of beers at the end. Um, and, yeah, it was really just a matter of going out, watching a lot of the other, you know, sports, not just track and field, supporting your teammates. Uh, and just spent a lot of time away from the village then because part of the deal of, uh, you know, being a good you know, team person in those sorts of situations is, yeah, to go out not too many nightclubs and what have you that we've got an opportunity to go to in Moscow but we just go out and and you know have have some beers have have a feed um, you know have a, have a good time but away from the village and then come back and support your teammates and, and but they also have the opportunity to go and look at some of the other events that were happening it might be gymnastics or you know could, you know swimming or or well, swimming was already over but certainly the gymnastics I remember going to the gymnastics so we just had a good time and just were able to just say okay no more. No more running, no more training. Um, let's just eat lots and drink plenty of beers. And, uh, and we certainly did that um, after the, um, the Edmonton Commonwealth Games in 78. Um, probably a bit more scope to, to go out and you know, go to a few pubs and bars and clubs and, and, and what have you. And uh, I can remember coming back after the Edmonton Games, you know, we'd go out somewhere and because there was a 24-hour village you know, restaurant with all the world's best food, you'd come back and hoe into a steak at 2 in the morning or, or, or whatever. And um, I came back and I was the heaviest I was in my life after the Edmonton Games. I used to compete at about 88, 89, maybe 90 kilos. but. When I got back to Sydney, I was 96, but that, oh, that really? was just from some beers and lots of steaks and lots of fries and just eat, eating anything. But yeah, so certainly let my hair down and um, then sort of had two or three weeks off and then thought, okay, time to start training and preparing for the,
0: the, the next game. Speaking of um, the next game and and, and the, the era that you're you in, um, it's well documented that our performance enhancing drugs were, were a problem. So, what was your experience with doping athletes, and were you ever tempted to jump on the, the bandwagon for to you know for a level playing field?
2: It's it's actually quite interesting because the uh, when I went to um, to Europe, I was working with a few different coaches, and they asked me how I was maintaining my Dianabol supply while I was in Europe. Yeah, right. And, and when I told them that I wasn't on the gear. Um, they almost dismissed me to say that I wasn't terribly serious about my sport. Um, yeah. so that's, that's how entrenched it, it was. And uh, I can remember being in a, a World Cup team um, as a traveling reserve, so I was just praying that the 10,000-meter runner didn't get injured, but yeah. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> but, uh, uh, and, and doing some um, sort of javelin training or some shot-put training with a, a few of the, the athletes And uh, particularly with um, the shot put, I can remember doing a training session with a couple of the leading um, throwers in the world. And one of the guys would have thrown over the world record mark half a dozen times while we were training, and he was just wide to the teeth. You know, his eyeballs, you know, your pupils were big as saucers. And then I caught up with him later that night in the hotel, and uh, he was like, I'm. People probably don't remember, but if you played a 45 um, vinyl at 33 and a half, you've got this really slowed down effect. So it was, (laughs) and and it was sort of don't mind me, and he'd taken you know just a handful of mogadon to come down after whatever you know the speed or whatever he was on. So there was a real drug culture, and um, it was wasn't just individual athletes there was a fairly significant you know systematic you know involvement and it just wasn't you know East Germany or Russia or whatever there was you know a whole range of decathletes that I knew and a lot of their coaches I knew had been saying that yeah you've got to get on the gear and I I suppose I was never really tempted um, but also they had um, some significant um, medical and chemical support so there was a there was a chemist as part of you know, would be part of the let's say the national coaching support team mm-hmm. and they could tell exactly you know almost to the you know to the second when they were clean and when they weren't how many days they needed to come off drugs and those sorts of things and they do liver function and kidney function testing and um so it's yeah i, I suppose to look back and you think yeah I probably would have been able to you know, perform better if I had been on the gear, but I just, yeah, you know, morally, and I guess from a health reason, decided not to go down that path.
0: Am I taking my uh, Daly Thompson picture down from the wall? What do? You, <laughs> can, can come, let me know. What do you what are your thoughts? No, I'm not saying anything, Maddie. But
2: um, now, th- well, the thing is, you know, Daly was never found um, positive at a
0: at a uh, competition. <laughs> That's a big, that's a big question mark over that statement. Nor was Lance Armstrong? Yeah, that's
2: yeah. <laughs> no, but I, I, as I said, you just can't, you can't make any accusations, and that's the problem. Even when I was competing, uh, there was a lot of Australian athletes that thought I was on the, on the gear because I was you know, doing a lot better than them, and I just said, well, no, I'm clean. Um, and there's a lot of disbelief when somebody does something, you know, I guess that extremely well and um, often the fallback or default situations are they must be on, on drugs. Unfortunately, a lot of them have been, but there's obviously a number of them that haven't been as well, so you just can't make any mm. any accusations because you don't know the truth.
1: Yeah, no. Not to be cynical now about a good performance, you always sort of go to that, uh... Yeah, drug sort of scene first. As soon as someone does anything good, it's the first thing that pops in your head.
0: So it's a shame. I'm just wondering what you're taking to run 100Ks. 100 K- 100 yeah, that's right. <laughs> I didn't tell you at the ASADA's on the way over. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> this this interview is actually doubling for a doping session. And how, how may you be tested too? Uh so this this being a, a running podcast, um, we should uh, we should talk about some of your PBs. Um, so should we do 100, 200, 400, 1500? Did did you refuse to run any further than 1500 with those fast twitch fibers?
2: I was like the um the non ever ready bunny. So it was fifteen hundred meters. It just stopped, didn't go any any further than that. And I'm I'm still like that now. Sometimes I go for a run with Paul, and he said I'm going, going to go for a run, but it's 5k is the absolute limit and i don't, i can't call
0: it a run it's just a plod but, but I, know, I know i've seen you at the boxing day slog <laughs> and i've had i've had triple o on speed dial already but
2: as far as pbs um best 100 was 10 10.50. wow best best 200 20.9 um, best 400 47 81 and um then the marks come down quite a fair bit from that best best um, 1500 was 426.
0: Yeah, wow. Some pr- very impressive times there. And managed to get around the boxing day slog
1: in just under an hour. Very, very impressive.
2: Was that the one I got lost in or the, the second time around? I thought you got lost in both, the, the both that you participated in. The, the time would suggest that I got lost in all of them, but I think the second one I actually found my way around the right way.
0: <laughs> Okay, so as you mentioned, um, your events over two days, and they're, they're quite long and, and arduous. So how do you manage your, your nutrition over those two days? To
2: Not probably as important as uh, you know, long distance runner, because when you actually break it down, you're doing, in your competition areas, you're doing, say, ten and a half seconds of a hundred meter sprint, and you're doing three you know, 30, 40 metre run-ups in a, a long jump and three three basically going two metres across a, a shot-put circle and half a dozen high jump run-ups. So you're actually only competing for about 15 and 20 minutes across those two days but it's all the warming up and cooling down and and it's all the mental um energy that you're burning up so that's that's the real key to it it's that ability to be able to switch on and switch off mentally so and and that brings a lot of decathletes undone because they try to be up and high mentally for the whole two days and you just can't do it so you have to be able to say get get yourself up to warm up then come down again then get yourself up to to sprint the hundred and then come down again and, and then get yourself prepared. So it's like having a light switch and just switching it on, switching it off. And I think that's sort of an important lesson for a you know, whole heap of sports people where you need to be able to focus when it's when you need to focus and you need to be able to relax when you can relax. But as far as nutrition goes, I used to make make sure I had you know, pretty big breakfast and it was just high you know, So used to have you know, cereals, toast, uh, bit of fruit, uh, plenty of fluid. Um, throughout the day no such things as as gels back back then used to probably drink a bit of electrolyte but mostly mostly just water Mm. and then whatever you could carry so I'd I'd have sometimes you know in a can you just have a baked beans in a can or something or you know tomatoes or fruit or whatever or some sandwiches sometimes they provide you know the the meat um, organizer or they provide some food for you but it was just a matter of making sure that you just had enough carbs to keep you going and I don't think you ever really felt depleted um, and I don't think it was that critical but you just need to make sure you keep pumping fluid into you the worst I ever was was I uh, I did a decathlon up in um, Brisbane in before they actually built the stadium at QE2 Stadium in, for the Commonwealth Games in 1982, they just laid the track, so they had the grass infield, you know, the synthetic track, and then the rest of it was a construction zone. So they uh, they had um, tents from the army that was where we get our rest and recovery in a couple of portaloos. Uh, but it was 43 degrees both both days, and I actually got you know quite bad heat stroke, uh, and I can remember running down the back straight um, in the 1500 meters. And um, and some well, I can't actually can't remember the running, but one of the guys came up to me and said, oh, "Did you realise you you're in lane four down the back straight?" And no, I had no idea. I was quite quite sick for a couple of weeks afterwards because I I did get quite bad heat stroke and lost lost a lot of lost a lot of weight. Um, but that's the only time it's really I've really been affected. But I was just crossed two days of 43 degree temperature for yeah, mm-hmm. but not all that important but certainly important for long long distance runners and and i think there's a bit of a science to it it's really a matter of uh, again well, i talked about preparing your warm-up and preparing your competition in training so that you knew exactly what you needed to do It was the same same thing i used to f- just find foods that sat well in my in my guts basically and and you know didn't feel churned up and i felt comfortable and i used to have those as part of my, my training preparation as well so it was yeah, just getting stuff into you that i that i enjoyed eating that i knew would sit well and and would keep me keep me going give me enough energy for the two days um and then it was always compulsory to have you know as many beers as i could drink after the uh, the, the 1500 was over and uh normally normally that was at the uh, the expense of the drug testers because back then they used to give you beers before you had to do your testing so you'd pa- power down a few beers and and then I can remember the first time I did it, there was me and another guy sitting in a, in a room in Sydney, and uh, was one of the guys had been in there two hours before me, to, and I, I was actually quite dehydrated, and he just said, oh, I can't hold on for any longer, I have to go now, so he, he was drink, drinking the, uh, the organiser's free beers to do his drug test, and he couldn't hold back any longer. I think he filled a bucket rather than a specimen bottle then.
0: <laughs> they, should, uh, they should go back to that period. what do you think?
2: Yeah, well, I think yeah, it's always good to, to relax and yeah, drink a bit afterwards. Um, I certainly didn't have any any beers after day day one. Again, that was that was the really important part of of the decathlon was after you'd run the 400 meters. So it was um, fair amount of lactic acid build up um, running the 400. Had to make sure that you know, I'd probably do 25, 30, 30 minutes of of jogging and stretching and what have you after that. Um so that you try to get rid of the lactic acid if you could you know I just put my you know legs in a pool or or whatever to try and cool down a bit or put them in a cold bath and then make sure you really got your nutrition, got plenty of protein in again that night and sometimes that was hard because it was after midnight before you could actually get to eat. So that was but I guess nothing terribly scientific but just things that I'd practised and and thought thought would work and they did work for me.
0: While we're talking about heat stroke, we had the Commonwealth games at the Gold Coast recently. Uh, the lead runner, the Scottish guy, collapsed two kilometres to go, and uh, there's been a bit of an uproar at um, the the Aussie for running past him to to get the gold. What what are you what are your thoughts on that?
2: I think that yeah, Michael Shelley did the right thing. Um, I many years ago I was the um, at, volunteered as a as a marshal for the the New South Wales Marathon Championships, and um, I was only couple of k's from home um was directing the few of the runners and it was this was in the first you know 10 of the the runners in in a marathon again reasonably hot conditions on on the road and one of the runners was running straight down and i had to direct him to take a 90 degree bend and head towards the towards the finish he just kept running straight past me and ran straight into a wall on the the other on the other side of the road so um and so he that the scottish runner was in the same situation but if michael shelley had have stopped at all or tried to bend down and you know do whatever one he can't help the athlete um, the athletes uh, are under almost an obligation not to get any support otherwise they become disqualified but if he had have stopped even briefly you know, who knows what might have happened as far as cramping up or you know mm-hmm. he, he may not have been able to continue. And if I'd already if I'd run 40 k's and stopped, I don't think I'd like to get started again. So mm-hmm. I think just mentally getting started. So it probably didn't look um, good, but for the, you know for people who don't know anything about marathon running, but I just think he did the right thing. He was obviously the Scottish guy was obviously in distress, um, but you know, Shelley had to do what he had to do. That was to get across the finish line, and he just kept focus he mightn't have even you know he was so focused probably at that stage he might might not have even seen him there mm-hmm. and, that, and that's quite a strong pros- possibility uh,
0: i i don't th- i didn't see the eyes go down so i'm gonna <laughs> i'm gonna agree with you there but the the marathon's a war of attrition anyway so it's you know they, when they start the race there's no guarantee they're gonna finish it it's not like other events you know um you, you're pushing as hard as you can for a little bit over two hours and you know you're you're competing against the environment, you're competing against the clock, and, you know, your body can break down and, and not everyone finishes. There were people that f- pulled out early with cramping and mm. that's the way it goes. You know, Shelly could have been one of those ones that cramped early. She, Shelley could have uh, got heat stroke as well, so he was entitled to, mm. to power through. He just got his pacing on,
1: basically, you know. He wasn't used to the conditions and went out too hard, so that's all there is to it.
2: And I think that's the unfortunate part about um, championship marathons is that, normally if you're doing you know berlin or paris or you know any of london or any of the major marathons you've got to start with your gloves on and and your beanie on because it's nice and cool or cold in in the at the start and unfortunately a lot of the the timing um for the marathon starts and are based around the television television ratings certainly at the olympic games they are and so there's never any thought about the the well-being of the mm, the, the, the athletes or the time of the day or, the the day or the whatever heat. or how hot it is and, and I've, I get, I've been fortunate in that I've been a you know a commentator at seven Olympics and seven Commonwealth games after I retired and I've been down and seen the, the, the areas after the the runners have, have come in or the walkers have come into the stadium. And it's just absolute carnage, and just about all of them are on you know intravenous trips and what have you, and people don't see that, but they just push themselves so hard that you know it's just not a natural thing thing to do, and they just have this ability. and, and the Scottish you know marathon runner sh- showed exactly what, how he just pushed his body beyond you know what his body was prepared to take, and mm. there's very few people that can push themselves. Mm. that hard
1: mm. it's pretty impressive actually that he was able to push himself to that point because like I say I don't think too many people can actually mentally do that most people slow down well before they're in that sort of stress so pretty tough character I guess
0: yeah and you know he, he got to 40k's <laughs> so <laughs> it was pretty impressive um, you've got a lot of experience and knowledge what would you pass on to our, um, our distance runners that, that make up the majority of our hack listeners
2: I'm not sure I'm probably the best person to give advice about distance running given my background but I think the the key to, for particularly for um, people coming through is I think there's a tendency for a lot of a lot of us to to overtrain and overtrain on on hard surfaces in fact um when I, was, when I was training before the LA Games, um, the, one of the guys that was a member of my athletic club in Adelaide was John Bannon, who was the Premier at the time. And he ran a sub-three-hour marathon and he, the longest that he could ever do in a training session, Monday to Saturday, was 5Ks. Oh, wow. And um, and then he'd do a, a, his long run on the, the Sunday. And I think that what athletes tend to do is probably to overtrain do too much distance and probably train at um, not so much too high an intensity but um i think the the key the key is to really err on the the side of doing less it's almost like the you know richie benno less less is more Mm. and i think that's that's an important part particularly for young up, up and comers because the incidence of, say, stress fractures and what have you, particularly in, you know, you know young girl um, distance runners, is really quite high, and I th- and that's a result of, of overtraining and, and a result of overtraining on hard surfaces. I was pretty friendly with Steve Monagetti, and I did a few stories um, for Channel Nine um, on his background, and we used to go down to Ballarat, and he would very very rarely um, actually train on the on the road. Yep. He he had a wonderful um, training venue around um, the the lake at at, um, at Ballarat which was had all these pine trees around it so he had this almost cushioned mm. pine needle um, running you know surface that he used to do just about all of his mileage on so I think that's the keys is, is look at um, trying to protect your body um, by not trying running on the hard surfaces um, certainly do yeah, a bit more um, flexibility work than most um, distance runners do. Um, certainly, do a bit more strength um, training than most distance runners do, um, and particularly getting that that core, you know organised, and even a little bit of cross training, like a bit of bit of swimming, or um, just so that you can get a bit of you know, endurance training going without pounding, pounding your legs. And I think that. Um, athletes that are able to keep healthy and and uninjured and keep a progressive training load going over a long period of time will get really good results. It's the ones that work hard and work intensely Mm. and then get injured and then they've got to come back and then it it becomes this yo-yo effect of Mm -hmm. training rather than this gradual improvement.
0: Yeah, not being patient with their training.
2: I think that's the thing and if you are injured Um, to actually be patient as well, do all the rehab you need to do and give yourself a little bit more time than even you expect that you need so that you come back because the injuries are a factor of life particularly if you're doing a, a lot of training but it's really a matter of trying to prevent those injuries and if you're doing flexibility and if you're doing strength and core work and even a bit of cross training and I think that's one of the benefits of the decathlon is because of, you know people ask me you know, did I had a litany of of injuries and I really wasn't injured at all over my entire career had a couple of trauma injuries where I missed the bags and pole vaulting and things like that but overall and you know even now 63 years of age I'm not really you know carrying legacy of of injuries from back when I was competing and I used to you know do crazy weights and you know, a lot of used to train 40 hours a week but I think the cross training effect really put me in good stead and I think if you can do a little bit of that cross training you know from a distance running perspective that'll help injury prevention and also
0: help your your final performances. Um, this, this may not be the, the appropriate question to ask but did you used to have a few beers before any of your events?
2: um depends how how before you mean man i i certainly didn't uh, abstain from from drinking beer Uh, i didn't find the need that i had to you know carbo load with 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 beers uh, just a couple of days beforehand but i used to room a lot with rob de costella and chris wardlaw who were both um you know well credentialed marathon runners in the in the 70s and, and 80s and they probably had sta- abstained from drinking beer for quite a while, but um, I can remember um, coming back to my room and, and uh, Wardlaw and De Costello was sitting down about two days out, you know, cramming a few beers into the system just because of the carbo mm. loading pro- property. So um, certainly um, getting the carbs in is is really important. I'm not sure about you know, true true carb loading with you know, depletions and what have you I'm not sure what the science is there but I just think you need plenty of, plenty of glycogen in the system because I you know, having called a lot of marathons certainly haven't um, run in any but having called a lot of marathons it's um, it's interesting where you see someone's you know running out of their glycogen and they're starting to jump into their fat stores and there's not too much fat on many marathon runners and and then once they've you know, used up their fat stores uh, it gets pretty horrendous when they're starting to burn up their protein then to, to fuel their running and that's what
1: happened to the scottish guy up in up in the gold coast there you go judge if it's good enough for deke it's good enough for you mate get back on the wagon so what would you suggest three or four <laughs> the night before or Um, <laughs> uh, probably not the night before
2: i think again the the hydration is probably important the night before but a couple of nights you know two, two or three nights out i think you know having a few beers is a, is a good thing and in fact um, yeah depending on how you well you sleep and what have you too like having a beer or two is not going to affect you in any way whatsoever and um, yeah, a lot of athletes feel though they really need to have a have a beer or two just to help, to help them relax and help them sleep because if you have a couple of restless nights that's going to have a negative effect on your performance as well but so again just Try it in training. So, Judge, if, if you like, just whenever you're training, if you're training seven days a week, you can probably
1: carbo-load with a few beers seven days a week. I, I think that's the problem. <laughs> I think he's training a lot. a lot. <laughs> what
0: was uh, what was Deke's quota? Because, you know, if we can implement something similar.
1: Deke didn't
2: mind a beer. So, um, Deke, Deke was a bit outside of the the norm, too. I think he's training... Uh, was a little different than everybody else. And plus, he was a different sort of build and D was a lot bigger than most marathon runners. Plus, he had you know, easy access to beers. So. <laughs> but he didn't mind a beer, but I guess he didn't go
0: crazy about it either. Um, if you had your time over, is there anything you'd do differently? Yeah,
2: there, actually, there is. I'd, I'd probably focus more on my um, my speed i think what's happening now is we're seeing some decathletes coming through that are being number one in the world and they can run yeah you know, 10, 10 to 100, 100 meters which really sets you up for you know, being able to be a good sprinter good long jumper good 400 runner good hurdler good pole vaulter good, good high jumper i probably concentrated a bit too much on the technical side of things and you know, i i was able to run you know, some good times but I would like to think that if I had to spend a bit more time on my, on my, um, say my sprinting technique, um, that I probably could have transferred that across to better performances. And I guess the other thing that I really wish that I had the opportunity to do would have loved the technology of um, mobile phones or video cameras or whatever to get instantaneous feedback about mm. technique because, yeah, we really didn't have that technology when I was around. And the first time I saw myself pole vault, I thought I was actually quite, just in my own mind, I thought I was quite a good technician. And when I f- first saw myself on video replay, I went, oh my God, that is so bad technically. And I was able to make some modifications, but it, uh, you know, back in the day, you know, we had to shoot you know, Super 8 film and if, if you had access to a camera and then you wouldn't, you'd have to get send it away and get it processed and you know, two weeks later, you might get ac- access to that film and video cameras really weren't available. And yeah. so that's one of the things that I would have really loved to be able to do to, to have access to that video feedback. And, and a lot of coaches now use it and, and use it well, but I think sometimes they overuse it because the athlete then uses loses that opportunity to feel for the event. Mm. They almost need to see themselves on video to get an idea of what they're going through rather than feeling, yeah, that was good or that was bad, or my hands in the wrong spot or my feet are in the wrong spot. You need that feel, but you also need that ability to you know, every now and again to get that feedback from from video as well.
0: A little bit uh, left field, though, but I believe you know uh, Reg Spears. I, I read the book out of out of the box, and um, can you tell us a bit about Reg and and your relationship with him?
2: Yeah, Reg is a very interesting character. My um my very first Australian team was a. Australia versus New Zealand test match that we did in Auckland um, in 1977 and for some reason I was made captain of that that team as well. Reg had won the the Australian Javelin Championship that year but he also won the Australian Javelin Championship ten years earlier in 1967 and Reg was quite a notorious character Um, He used to smoke um, a bit of dope as preparation for his um, javelin throwing and his training, and he got busted a few times for growing his own. Uh, And um, he competed for Australia in the Perth Commonwealth Games in 1962, and then for 60, leading into the 64 Olympics, um, he had by far the best throw in Australia that year and um, just before the Australian Championships he got he tore um, his bicep away from the, the bone. And so he, he sort of did rehab and then the selector said, well, if you can prove that you're fit and go over to Europe to um, get a few competitions under your belt, um, we'll put you in the 64 Tokyo team. So Ridge had no money. So he actually um, worked his way on a, on a tanker um, from Australia over to the UK, um, trained for a few months over there and uh, ran out of money. His arm wasn't coming any better. So he came up with this great idea because he had a part-time job working for Air France in their um, cargo department. He actually mailed himself cash-on delivery in a crate from from the UK to Perth and lived, lived to tell the tale. Uh, and then after he'd done that, um, he came back in, and still won a, an Australian championship in, uh, in, in 1967, 1977, so he had a long, a long career as being one of the best javelin throwers. Uh, his, um, I suppose, drug, drug habits um, to grow his own couldn't, couldn't get enough um, weed, so he and his brother and a couple of other um, conspired to bring in a million dollars worth of cannabis um, and they got busted. And um, so Reg was arrested, went to jail and um, was let out on bail and skipped the country with his girlfriend. And they ran this Bonnie and Clyde type existence around Africa and Europe and, uh, and America just smuggling drugs. He um, got arrested again in Bombay, he was had 25 kilos of hash inside a, a drum that he was in scuba gear, gear welding below the waterline of this tanker bound for Australia and spent three years in Bombay um, prison and they stupidly let him out on bail okay. and, he, and he, jumped the, he skipped the country again and then the market fell out of the sort of hash trade so he actually started um, smuggling heroin and he smuggled a, a kilo and a half of heroin into Colombo in Sri Lanka and got caught so he, was, he wasn't much of a smuggler because he kept getting caught all the <laughs> yeah. time and he was actually sentenced to hang in, wow. in Colombo and um, again got off on a technicality because the um, the customs agents they actually they'd stolen half of what, they, what Reg had bought in so he bought in just under 1.4 kilos or whatever and the Exhibit A only had 600 um, grams, and so we got off the... They couldn't prove beyond reasonable doubt that the customs agents hadn't tampered with, and so they weren't sure then. They couldn't guarantee there was actually heroin that he'd brought in or, you know, sugar or, or whatever. So got off on a technicality and then came back to Australia and was placed back in back in jail for his original, you know, bringing in a million dollars' worth. So I actually um, interviewed Reg for, for a long weekend amongst all of the... Um, sort of marijuana smoke haze, um, I probably you know, just just through passi- passi- passively being in the roo- room probably got high as a kite but uh, I've got 30 hours of um, tape and I d- took some transcripts and there's actually, so I, I actually put that transcript together about 10 years before the, the book was written but I wasn't interested in writing a book, I'm, I'm interested in doing a film deal and I'm still, I'm still working on the film deal, but I've got, actually got a meeting in two months' time with one of the major Australian um, producers. So oh, not, really? We might get it across the line. Wow. So, yeah, all, all this time later. But, uh, again, I took um, Paul and, and Mark and, and our daughter, Casey, um, to ju- to Reg, uh, where he was in, in jail in in South Australia, and they were all singing in the car. Yeah, we're going to visit Reggie Dajy or something, whatever it was. And then when they were actually behind the the prison walls, I think their tone certainly changed. I think it was a little bit confronting, but it was probably a good lesson. But was, Reg is the most charming guy. He's, um, you know, the ladies love him. He's six foot five, you know, blonde hair and what have you. When he was competing, he used to be a model for the, you know, front cover for the Women's Weekly and things like that. And he wouldn't take um, performance-enhancing drugs because he said that was cheating. But he had no, problem. <laughs> he had no, no problems it's, in smuggling it's drugs. Quite a contradiction, it's isn't it? Contra- contradiction. But yeah, so no interesting character. And and he he would often um, the stories go he'd be you know, couldn't sleep before a competition and he'd be out there on the grass. You know, just get, would get out of bed um, and he'd just have his javelin boots on. But Completely in the nude, yeah, you know, th- thro- throwing javelins or doing his javelin run up or something, um, yeah, much much to the alarm of you know, any any of the other hotel guests or whatever. So, yeah, he's still he's still around and um, you know, hopefully I will get a chance to catch up with him if we get
0: this film deal across the line. Oh wow, well that's exciting. We might have a first here talking about that. That's 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 great. So um, before we finish up, we're we're having a beer here. You've got a Crown Lager. I'm drinking Stone and Wood. Uh, had, he's, had he's got his Forex uh, Gold Pale Ale. What's your, uh, your go to beer?
2: Anything that's in the fridge. I, um, I suppose because I didn't drink a lot when I was an athlete, um, more than the fact that I couldn't really afford to drink too much rather than uh, I quite enjoy the taste of it. Uh, but I think I'm making that up in my um, later life. I, uh, I quite enjoy a beer. Um, I like a lot of the craft craft beers around um, I pretty much wherever I travel I just drink whatever the local brew brew is so if I'm in you know, Cuba I drink the local Cuban beer or whatever so I, we travel a fair bit now so I drink the local product I do uh, enjoy a wine of any color whether it be red white or rose or anything in between and again um, I can't even say that I, I drink it in moderation because that would be a lie sometimes. <laughs> but I, I do enjoy it. And I think the thing is, if you're going to drink beer or drink wine, just make sure you drink some good stuff. Don't, don't drink inferior
0: quality beer or wine. Did you hear that, ruby Yeah. <laughs> and um, what about the boutique beer? I mean, it's it's taken off in the last 10 years, the the boutique beer industry. Do you, do you have any of the boutique beers or the craft beers that you like or do you think it's a, it's a waste of money?
2: Oh no! I think I think I do. I, I certainly do love the boutique beers. It's just a matter of again, there's just so many of them out there. It's just a matter of saying, okay, try this, try that. There's so there's so many of them, and um, I must admit, I probably have never ever drunk a bad beer though. Uh, particularly here in Australia. In fact, mm-hmm. I used to brew my own when I was at university. I had had my own you know, home homebrew gear, and but back in those days, I used to have to brew the hops yourself, and it was all all from the raw materials. You couldn't just buy some packets and and then just brew it up. So I, I can say then that I I did make some really bad beers that I had to throw out, and I must admit I I blew up my old man's garage a couple of times <laughs> when when <laughs> when we were brewing beers, and probably
0: got the alcohol yeah you know, sugar level a little bit wrong. I think and, so. Yeah. Danny, Danny, too, will be disappointed about that. He makes Manchester Brewing up the road. Danny's one of the guys that runs with us regularly. I know uh, Danny makes, very well. He's yeah, uh, also
2: of associate of Sydney Water, so no,
0: Dan, Dan's a really good guy. Yeah, he makes pretty good beer, too. So on that note, we'll finish up. I'll just get your autograph. Um, so do you want a christopher reeve
2: or the real one
0: yeah yeah if you just sign here christopher that'd be great uh thanks very much for your time really appreciated, and uh it's been an enjoyable catch up and uh yeah i'll see you out on the trails
2: yeah probably if you're running very slowly or you're, or you're lapping matt that's the only time you'll see me on a trail terrific thanks guys